Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. This future-gazing series of podcasts will examine an assortment of speculative scenarios, what-if conjectures and provocative prophecies. Some will be more likely to come true than others, but thinking about possible futures can help us understand the present and the various paths along which events might unfold. Today, we're asking, what if actors were replaced by digital versions of themselves? We're kind of already seeing this. There's nothing technologically to stop five or ten or fifteen more Terminator films, all starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, going out way into the 21st or 22nd centuries. And how will the future be framed for the eyewear industry? I really feel the selfie culture and Instagram is really making a big difference. First, we travel to the year 2024. President Donald Trump is in office for a second term and his constant attacks on allies, be it on trade, security or social policy, has dismantled much of the international rules-based order. I'm joined by David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief, to discuss what might replace it. Hello there, David. Hello. And welcome to 2024. Now, in your vision of the future, America has lost a lot of ground on the international stage. How did you envisage that happening? Well, you can break it down into big areas of kind of trade and security policy, ways that America has been picking fights already With these sort of futurism exercises, often the the thing that we're trying to do is to look at current trends and just kind of draw that line further up and see how far it could go in a kind of worst case scenario. So you can look at trade. Already the United States is worrying some trade experts because it's blocking appointments of new judges to what's effectively the appeals court of the global trade regulator, the World Trade Organization. If they keep doing that, and in this scenario we imagine they do, you see the potential for a country like China to come up with some alternative parallel trade dispute settling bodies. And there you can actually see kind of embryonic ones that China has set up at the moment very, very narrowly to look at disputes involving this big infrastructure project. They have the Belt and Road Initiative. But if you're paranoid, you worry that if America wrecks the current structures, then that embryonic Belt and Road dispute resolution mechanism could turn into something like a China-run dispute court for trade. And you have in your piece a scandal by a putative whistleblower in the future who discovers a backdoor into the security system of cars. And that's via the kind of cameras and tracking sensors that are coming into cars anyway. But it allows the Chinese to eavesdrop on people all around the world. Is that a genuine fear or a convenient dystopia if you're writing this kind of piece? So, I mean, Edward Snowden taught us that uh, clever countries can put backdoors into things like phones and laptops. So I was trying to think if you had a Chinese version of Edward Snowden, what might they target? Well, one of the things you can see at the moment is as everyone in the world gets very excited about things like self-driving cars or you know autonomous cars, these things do pass an enormous amount of data back to the parent company. If you drive a Tesla, one of the things that happens is your car is constantly sending data back to Tesla. Why do you, why do you then look at China? Well, China has been pushing very, very hard that 
when foreign companies use products or sell products in China that generate data, that data should be stored on Chinese soil. And that has been worrying people who think that basically China's security services want to see all the data being generated inside China. So that's, if you take that trend line, extend it forwards with a bit of paranoia, that's where you end up. With a little pinch of paranoia, which is justifiable in the circumstances. So going back to the idea of a superpower spying on people across the world, it sounds a bit familiar to me, David, if we look at what's been happening with the allegations of Russian interference in US elections and indeed others. Are we being a bit naive or perhaps blaming the Chinese in advance when it's already happening? Clearly, America and Russia started much earlier than China spying on people. They're very good at it. They've used each new technology to spy on people, whether it's phones or emails. Why are people worried about China? Well, China is building quite openly the world's most advanced surveillance state. Here in Beijing, the streets bristle with facial recognition cameras. You take a train or a plane or you do anything in this country, your identity is logged and snapped. People find that a bit sinister in the outside world. If China becoming a giant producer of the most advanced cars means that that same surveillance state will catch you if you buy a Chinese-made car 20 years from now, I think that does worry people. So it's about, it's not about China being uniquely wicked at all. It's about China growing very fast, being more likely to be the country where your new car is made, and you add that together with China's new surveillance state, and that could mean when you buy a car, the Chinese can spy on you. That's a new and shocking thought to people, I think. So we'll enjoy reading your possible dystopia, but what do you think could be done to stop such a vision coming true or at least limit the influence of big powers who want to intervene to the detriment of others using technology? So I think this all ties into a much larger dispute about how China wants to modernise its economy. China has made very clear that it wants to make the high tech of the future and that that high tech of the future needs to be made in China, that China needs to have total access to all the data that high tech produces, that high tech things like cars have to use Chinese chips, Chinese computers, that the data has to go to Chinese servers. That very government directed nation state model of China's modernization, you know, leaving aside worries about your car spying on you, that I think a lot of countries have a problem with. They say, by all means, China should modernise, but it has to share. It has to let European companies have a, a slice of that business. It has to stop insisting that everyone transfer their highest technology to China if they want to sell in China. So really, this kind of dystopian story is a way of looking at what would happen if that argument was won by China in a way that would make Europeans or Americans right now very unhappy. Because it's a way of looking at basically Europe and America losing the argument that they're currently having with China about how technology of the future should work as China gets bigger and richer. David Rennie, thanks very much. Thank you. For our next trip into the future, try to imagine a world where film and TV actors need not be creatures of flesh and blood. Instead, they exist as digital creations, created at will by studios using computing power and artificial intelligence. This isn't something new, however. In Hollywood and advertising, both Carrie Fisher and Audrey Hepburn have reprised famous roles posthumously. Even decades ago, stars such as Oliver Reed and Marlon Brando have been artificially recreated on our screens. Well, to look at how much further all this can go and imagine this future, 
I'm joined in the studio by the very real Tim Cross, science correspondent for The Economist. Hello, Tim. I can only assume that you are the real thing. I think I'm the real thing. Hi, Anne. Well, where are we with this technology? How is it being used and what's really changed since I think I remember seeing a hologram many, many years ago in, uh, in a film? What's moved on? Well, like you said, it's not completely new. Um, We've been bringing actors back from the dead and doing sort of clever things with CGI for quite a while. So you can already kind of do this, but it's quite difficult. So the way it's done at the moment, for instance, the Audrey Hepburn ad you talked about, which came out a couple of years ago, that took a huge amount of just sort of hard work by hand. You had legions of of artists tweaking things to try and make it look realistic. And what's changed, I think, or what might soon change is that technology might make this dramatically easier to the point where you can dispense with a lot of that human labour and do it all on a computer. And will this technology be easily made by others outside the big studios or does it still need that vast teamwork, computational power? Well, it it sort of depends on on what you want to do and depends on how good you want to make it. So this whole technology, which has now been dubbed uh, deep fakes, it hit the headlines when a bunch of people at home used it to alter porn films and put the faces of famous actors, you know, without their permission, obviously, into these porn films. And, And, you know, you can do this and the quality is sort of it's fairly obvious you're looking at something that isn't real, but it's still kind of quite impressive. If you put a bit more effort in, you can get much more convincing fakes. So we've seen videos that look for all the world like Barack Obama, the former president, giving a speech. And actually, they're just entirely generated by computers who've been shown you know, examples of his face and, and, and what he sounds like and have generated a new version of him saying whatever it is you, you want him to say. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. Moving forward, we need to be more vigilant with what we trust from the Internet. That's a time when we need to rely on trusted news sources. So image is one aspect of this, but what about voice? Am I going to be out of a job soon when my voice is simply constructed by some team you've come across on your researchers? Well, actually, voices is easier than pictures of anything. I mean, oh, Lord. People, it turns out people are sort of hypersensitive to faces, so it's really hard to do sort of close-ups well. It takes a lot of effort. Voices, much more straightforward. There was a paper from, I think, Baidu, the big Chinese internet company, and they reckon they can convincingly imitate uh, a voice now with just a few seconds of, of samples to learn from. So, you know, I could well just be a disembodied voice coming out of the speakers and no one would ever know. You think you've got problems, you should try being a presenter. So if all this happens and actors are immortal in a sense, they're they're like gods who live on, will this affect the kind of films that we see made and maybe even limit new talent entering the industry? Well, so this is the big question. I mean, for example, there have been five Terminator films, by my count, since the first one in the 80s. The sixth one's coming out next year. And Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in all of them but one. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'm back. She'll be back. I'll be back. What? Some of the more recent ones, they've used a version of this technology where they've got a younger person to act essentially as a meat puppet and sort of wander around the set and do things. And then you digitally put Arnie's face on the top. We're kind of already seeing this, and there's there's nothing 
technologically to stop five or 10 or 15 more Terminator films, all starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, going out way into the 21st or 22nd centuries. We both know Arnie is eternal. Come on. And fake news is, of course, a perhaps more serious application outside the entertainment industry. And actually, when it comes to the presentation of information with sort of fake faces, fake voices. Does that worry you? Yeah, I mean, this is this is something that people have paid a bit more attention to. And we, we talked about the Barack Obama example earlier. But absolutely, I mean, you can use this as a very effective sort of form of propaganda. And in fact, there's a bet running among some AI researchers at the moment as to whether we'll see this kind of deep fake video used before the end of the year. And let's go to the extremes. We can do this in the world ahead. How far do you think this could go? What would the extremes look like? Well, it all depends on how good the algorithms get. You could see a world in which Hollywood's pretty conservative anyway. Blockbusters are expensive. So the business model is give people more of what, they're, what they like. And if people really like Hugh Grant in rom-coms or Arnie in action films, you could just give them that forever. Well, you know, one thing it might do is make the film industry even more conservative. One of the, the ideas that was suggested to me was you could tailor films for markets. So again, if you have an action film, you could have maybe Donnie Yen in the lead role for the Chinese release, and then, I don't know, Vin Diesel in the US and Jason Statham in the UK. You could even start to sort of amalgamate people and work out what's the platonic ideal, say, of a rom-com lead. And you take, you know, one bit Hugh Grant, one bit Cary Grant, and sort of, you know, mix it all together in, into some kind of perfect rom-com actor. Maybe even if, if there's enough computing power in your house, you could a film would become a sort of blank slate into which you can load anyone you want. Maybe you'd get a cheap version of the film that stars some unknown actor. If you want a more expensive one, then you can pay an extra £5. It all depends on how good this technology gets. Well, there's some hope then for our futures there, at least. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks, Anne. Just to prove I'm not a computer-created voice, I've been let out of the studio and I've taken a short trip to the showroom of Galleria Cefilo here in London. The Cefilo group has been designing and manufacturing glasses since 1934, so perhaps there's no one better to help look to the future for eyewear and as technology advances and medical procedures become easier, discuss if there's a future at all for good old-fashioned spectacles. I'm joined by Frédéric Lafort, head of Europe for Safilo, and he's going to help me gaze into the future. Welcome to the world ahead. Welcome to Safilo office. So what do you need to do in your research to be able to predict what the market is likely to be for eyewear? And how far ahead can you see? The world of fashion overall is very unpredictable, and that's the beauty of it. But uh, we are working closely with many brands and fashion houses in order to understand the market trends and what the future should be from an eyewear standpoint. Julia Barajola has just joined us from Sofilo. Julia, you are going to show me around what you've got here. And this is upcoming trends. It's the sort of things we might be seeing in the shops or possibly on the end of our nose in the years ahead. So let me show you. I've prepared here some of the hottest trends for opticals within our portfolio. Something inspired by the 80s which we call the geek look. So, of course, geek a little... Look. Yes. I've definitely got a lot of colleagues who would fit so into that pretty bit, well. a little bit old school, just to give a very strong statement. Of course, these are strong shape that you wear. And the main prediction is that we see the optical frame and the optical market being bigger and stronger. Uh, there is a big need for uh, correction of vision. Uh, people in need of correction are getting... Uh, uh, much bigger uh, in the next uh, five to ten years due to uh, a couple of factors. 
And what is going on here? Is our sight getting worse or are we just getting older? I think it's a combination of both, actually. Uh, population is aging, and actually you're going to have uh, one third of the population over 45 years old by 2030, which is quite big. And then you have the need for uh, correction, vision correction, which is going to increase dramatically, especially in terms of uh, myopia, where about a third of the population has a myopia issue, and uh, globally it's going to get to 50% in the next coming 10 years. As someone with a myopia issue and every other kind of issue, really, when it comes to eyewear, I need lots of different spectacles for different things. A lot of people are blaming the rising use of technology for that. Is there any evidence to back it up? There are a lot of research which are backing the fact that it's more the, a question of lifestyle, which is impacting basically the, uh, the myopia uh, growth. And definitely, you know, the, the use of multiple device, software, computer, tablets, and etc., is having an impact. While in the past, if we look at our grandparents, they used to spend a lot of time outside, reading eventually books, but not spending their uh, days on uh, TV or screen. Aha, you found a little surprise for me. Now, this is something I had not seen before, probably because it's only just coming on the market. So a very elegant, very light maroon metal frame, circular glasses, quite big, and then with a logo imprinted on them. Of course, when I look through them, I don't want to look at a logo. No, and if you wear them, you don't see the logo, actually. Mm -hmm. But it's a way to, we now not only communicate on the frame itself, but we're able to communicate on the lenses, which is quite new. And this is getting very hot as a style, for sure. You're going to be looking at you through a logo in the next couple of years. It's extraordinary. A lot of us are opting for corrective surgery for our site, and yet you're saying the market's still growing. Doesn't this eat into your potential to grow your market? No, because the market potential is so big, even with the surgery getting bigger and bigger, is still a very small percentage of the total uh, market size. So, I mean, they can still combine uh, eyewear correction being, while at the same time being very much into uh, having sunglasses and uh, eyewear as a fashion accessory. I really feel the selfie culture and Instagram is really making a big difference in the eyewear industry because, of course, glasses and sunglasses sit on the face and are used very much to create an identity and a look through selfies. So, of course, eyewear is becoming more and more visible. So it just has to look good on my Instagram, otherwise I'm not having it. Yes, of course. It's really important. So kids and teenagers are definitely a growing market and segment, especially in specific parts of the world, like in Asia, where 80 to 90% of the population around 18 years old has myopia. So it's almost double than what it is in the US or in Europe. So this generation of 18 years old uh, have a massive need of uh, correction, about 80-90%, uh, which uh, will make the, the market of eyewear uh, quite big in, in the future. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can find out more about these stories at economist.com slash worldif. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>